When I was in my first semester of seminary, I drove about 30 miles one way to get to school. And it was in Riverside, California, which if you know anything about the traffic, going against traffic in Riverside, it's a bad idea. So I was very fortunate. One of the things in our library, there were literally hundreds of sermon CDs, or not CDs, they were cassettes back then. Uh, and so I would uh, just go check out a Bible series and plug it in and, and just listen to sermons on the way to seminary. It was wonderful. One of those, a particular series by John MacArthur, uh, in this series he had a particular sermon and in that sermon, he parasailed all the way through the book of Ephesians. And he got to the end of the book of Ephesians. And what he said was, outside the Trinity, you are the hottest commodity in the universe. And that stuck. That message, along with other discipleship that I received, brought me to the point that whenever anybody would ask me how I was doing, I would respond by saying, I'm blessed. Because I figured that was the right answer no matter what was going on. It was certainly more Christian of an answer than just saying, I'm fine. None of you guys have ever done that, though, have you? One of my professors said to me towards the end of my career at the International School of Theology, he said, you're repetitive. And I think what he meant as a mild rebuke, I have sort of turned into a mantra it is it has kind of become a life thing for me to be repetitive. And the reason is, is because I so easily forget. So I th- say things like, I'm blessed. Or I'll say things like, small groups don't divide, they multiply. Or I'll say things like, praise Jesus. You've never heard me say that. Or I'll say things like, we'll talk about lying next week. But the one that I repeat probably most often because I think it's fundamental to living the Christian life is the phrase that we need to trust the promises of God for us in Christ. That that really gets at the heart of what it means to live the Christian life. And... I try to back that up in every single sermon that I preach by giving a promise or two or more so that you can take just that promise and trust it this week. I intend to do no less again tonight. And in so doing, what I want us to capture in Psalm 46 is a a good understanding of what divine mercy is all about. And I'm doing this, as I said a moment ago, because when we return to the Beatitudes, we need to have an understanding of what God's mercy looks like. We need to know this because Jesus promises, it's His promise to give us this mercy when we are merciful. And so I'm calling this sermon Dominant Mercy. Because I want you to get a flavor of what this mercy is like that God gives us. So let us open up to Psalm 46. And what we're going to see is that God will relieve our distress. Often he relieves that distress by sending consuming fire. Psalm 46, listen to the word of the Lord. God is our refuge and our strength. A very present help 
in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. The first application we're going to make from Psalm 46 is that you and I must fear not. Do not be afraid. The psalmist declares defiantly here in verse 2. He says, We will not fear. We will not be afraid. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, if we are not to fear, especially some of those really scary things he just named, I don't know if you've ever been sucked down under a six-foot wave at Huntington Beach. I have. (laughs) It's pretty scary. If we are not to fear, then what we're going to have to have is an external help, like a refuge, a fortress. A mighty fortress is our God. We'll need this fortress that surrounds us and protects us from outside attack. And we will need internal help. We will need strength in our bodies and our souls to fight the battle that comes. And specifically, the battle that the psalmist is talking about right here is fear. You ever been afraid? You ever worried because you didn't know what was going to happen? You ever have that anxiety in your heart because you just weren't sure what was going to happen? You need an external refuge and you need internal strength. Now note, pay attention to this. Only God can provide this. We can arrange people to protect us on the outside. But all the M16s and AK-47s in the world are not going to give us the security we need. Furthermore, you and I can have friends who nurture us and love us and do the very best that we can do. But it cannot meet our real need. That real need is always only going to be met by trusting 
the promises of God who will always come through for us. God will never fail. And you and I need this help. We need these problems, these, these, um, these promises. Because as the verse right after this says, because troubles are coming. Bad things are going to happen. And my friends, God's Word is brutally honest. God's Word does not pull punches. It promises us great and magnificent things that we can't even begin to understand. But it also tells us that we need these great and magnificent promises because man was born to trouble. It's just as sure as fire or sparks fly upward. And it's in this regard that I can't help but remember one of my favorite promises in the whole Scripture. Isaiah 43, 1-3 But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel. I wish I could preach this right now. He says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I bought you back from the slave market of sin. I have called you by name. You are Mine. That is a promise you can take to the bank. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. When you are afraid, write this down. When you are afraid, you go to Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 3, and you speak that into your heart. Psalm 46 is a good one, too. But Isaiah says, when you pass through the waters, when you walk through the fire, because God knows not only will you face these kinds of dangers in the world about you. But Paul also tells us in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus might, you know, face some problems in life. Is that what he says? All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Period. And my friends, God pities us. Because God pities us, He looks down and He acts to relieve us from our distress. But that relief is not always, maybe not even usually, that relief is not always relief from the pain and the strain. That relief is in the form of strength and protection and purity to withstand that trial. This is because in our adversity, whenever we go through whatever kinds of trials we go through, the point, although there may be many points, but the point to keep in mind is our trials are there to draw us closer to God so that we know Him better. And when we know God better, we will therefore also love Him and trust Him more. And that is why we do not need to fear Verse 2, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Note what's going on here in this section and in the next section. The, The psalmist keeps repeating this contrast between what is solid, firm, and unmoving 
and that which represents just unbridled chaos, both the mountains and the sea. Have you ever felt that something that ought to have been solid and firm was unsure and you just had no idea what was going to come next? Have you ever felt like nothing was dependable? I think that it is noteworthy that the authors of this psalm were named Korah, the sons of Korah. And when I was reading this psalm, I said, thought to myself, that earth never gives way. That never happens. Oh, except for in the rebellion of Korah. In number 16, what we have there is in verse 32, their rebellion against God ended by the earth just opening up and then closing again right on top of them. Holy smokes! Some of you are named after someone in the Bible. I bet you know a little bit about that. I bet these guys knew about that story. And then I was thinking, mountains don't move. Except in Exodus 19.18, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled. I take it it was just in this constant state of earthquake while Moses was up there. So what did the people of Israel do? I love this. This is one of my favorite (laughs) stories about Israel before they make it to the promised land. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. Why? Because we don't want to see that God that just shook that mountain. We're going to die if we do. This psalmist obviously knew his Old Testament history. But what about this idea of the roaring and raging waters? Well, the Jews, like many peoples before and since, were afraid of water because they had no control over it. And you could, well, you know, die if you went too far out in the ocean. And that would be true of us as well. Except... We know the one who walked on the winds and the waves. We know the one who said, Peace! Be still. And His disciples said, What manner of man commands the winds and the waves and they obey Him? Indeed, what manner of man? Only the perfect God-man who showed up so that we would know we need not fear anything. You don't need to fear. We don't need to fear because God will relieve our distress and He often does it by sending a consuming fire. We don't need to fear, but we also must rejoice in the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Here's another truth from this passage that you can take to the bank. What we get out of these four verses here is that evil destabilizes. It breaks the bonds. It makes us unsure and unsteady, kind of like floating in the ocean. When you and I sin, when you and I say to God, God, forget it. I don't want you involved in this part of my life. I'm going to do this on my own. We will necessarily be off kilter. 
We won't be as secure as when we're walking with Jesus. And we sure won't be rejoicing in the kingdom that cannot be shaken. What do we find here? Starting in verse 4. I love this verse. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. I love that. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And then contrast, verse 6. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Last week, when we were in our Beatitude series, which again, we haven't left. We're getting back there. We gave the blessedness is happiness devil its due. We noted that the right quote-unquote happiness is to go after this sense of contentment and well-being that comes from pursuing holiness. We found out you cannot catch happiness if you're chasing happiness. Instead, Jesus says, chase holiness and you'll catch happiness. And if we're chasing after the the opposite of that, just these pleasurable feelings that are associated with some sort of stimulus, we're going to be way off base and we're never going to find either holiness or happiness. And we noted this because pleasurable feelings are famously fickle. As soon as you get what you think, have thought for months was going to make you happy, what happens? You want the next thing. Anybody not have that experience? Boy, that's happened to me a thousand times. You'd think I would learn. But this idea of contentment shines through the whole self. This kind of awareness is indeed what all men long for. And we try to capture, but unfortunately we chase it in the wrong ways. But those who dwell in the city of God, those who are refreshed by the river whose streams give gladness to us, know intuitively what the psalmist says in Psalm 36. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. And I love this too. In your light we see light. Hmm. But I want you to notice something. We just spent the first three verses talking about the seas raging and roaring and they're knocking mountains down and mountains are trembling because they see the oceans and they're so violent and unpredictable. But what gives the gladness here in verse 4 and also here in chapter 36? A river. Notice the difference. You have to catch. The psalmist is trying to get your attention. It's not necessarily in the medium that we get or don't get pleasure. It's in the trusting of God who gives us this water. In one sense, in the raging, roaring ocean. And in the next sense, the river that gives a constant flow of life-giving sustenance. 
we also see in verse 4, he was talking about the mountains shaking and trembling and being moved into the heart of the sea. But in verse 4, we find the city of God, which is where? Mount Zion. In Jerusalem, on top of the holy hill. And it's this very picture of stability that was declared worthless in verses 2 and 3 that now is where God lives and is of ultimate worth. Because when we're trusting, whatever it is we're trusting in, if God is not there, we're, we're lost. Here's the point. Whatever we trust in apart from God will prove worthless, vain, weak, and ultimately not just worthless, but positively destructive. However, when God is in it, then He will prove, or whatever it is He's giving us, will prove all that we in fact need. What does this look like? Let's get down to brass tacks. Okay, let's say you invest in a 401k. Good idea. Invest, setting aside money, investing, you know, if, you, if you're patient, it will, over the long haul, it has historically proven to be a good investment. But not if you're greedy. It doesn't prove a good investment at all. How many have lived through the last decade and seen those 401ks go up and down quite a bit, right? Not only that, but let's say you're at 401k has done one of these steadily not doing anything else if at the heart of your trusting in a 401k is the the love of money you will find that you have a root of all kinds of evil and evil destabilizes evil knocks you off kilter evil pushes you away from that which is truly solid but if you know and trust in the Lord, whether your 401k goes through the roof or through the basement, you will have a security that is greater than any cash you can buy. What if you make your hope in health insurance? Good idea. It is a good idea. You laugh at me. I knew somebody would. Good idea, because medical costs are, are medical expenses are costly. Amen. But if you aren't first and foremost trusting in God rather than in your health or in your blue shield, what you will ultimately find is worthless and you won't have the life that's worth living with the health that God gives you. Those who originally read this psalm noticed something that English-only speakers can't notice. He repeated one word in particular three times. In verse 3, it's translated moved. In verse 3, the mountains moved. In verse 4, 5, excuse me, she, or that is Jerusalem, will not be moved. And in verse 6, he uses the same word, but this time it's translated totter. The kingdoms totter. They're, they're just not steady. I think that he's using this one word over and over again in these three verses to show us that what ought to be steady can be moved and what is steady because it belongs to God cannot. And that's why the mountains can be moved, the kingdoms that we look at and think, oh my goodness, the Soviet Union will never fall. Well, 1989 came along. Oh my goodness, whatever government or whatever group 
of terrorists you're afraid of, you know what? They're going to be in the dustbin of history someday. And probably not too long. Thank you. That is a good amen. Instead, Jerusalem, the city of the king, will not be moved. Ultimately, our psalm teaches us that the most stable things we find on earth are as stable as the sea and are easily moved when we look to them instead of God. And by the way, as a side note, this is free of charge. This is exactly what Paul is talking about when he says have the mind of the Spirit or have the mind of the flesh. You can have the mind of the Spirit and invest in your 401ks if what you're doing is trusting in the Lord instead of your money. You can equally have the mind set on the flesh when you're investing in your 401ks because what you're doing is saying, I will be secure when I have a million dollars. No, you won't. You'll be like J.D. Rockefeller. How much do you need, Mr. Rockefeller? Just a little bit more. This is very clearly true in verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdom totters. He, God, utters His voice, and guess what? The earth melts. the, The firm foundation we were trusting on just disappears from under us. That which depends on evil, and in this case signified by the nations raging, which is a clear allusion to Psalm 2. If you don't know that, you should look it up. And this evil ultimately is movable or totters, and it cannot be trusted. But don't miss this point. If you forget everything else I say, this is not primarily about kingdoms and mountains. This is about us in this case. Because... This is true for us when we are raging, when we are double-minded men, unstable in all we do. And what we find out is that we are far from being able to have the peace that God longs to give us in the midst of our trials. A concrete example of this is when you trust in your own schemes to make someone near you change. You ever do that? You ever want to fix somebody And so you go about all your planning and scheming and you get your friends on your side and you're going to kind of help this person come to know Jesus better, right? Does that ever work? No. But listen, you think about it. You get godly counsel. You pray and you ask Jesus to help you bless this person. And guess what? I am a firm believer that people can change by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the power of Greg's scheming and machinations. And that brings us to the key verse of this psalm. In fact, it's so important, the psalmist includes it twice. Verse 7 and verse 11. Verse 7, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And this is where I get the title of our sermon, Dominant Mercy. Listen to my paraphrase of verse 7. The great I am of the armies of heaven, the Lord of hosts, is with those who trust His promises. And then just to make sure you get the point, the second half, the God of the guy who was famous for cheating and lying his way to fortune is the one who protects us. Why does God keep saying, my name is the God of Jacob? Because Jacob was a liar. 
Jacob was a cheater. Jacob was that neighbor that you would not want to have because he's going to be moving fences and he's going to be taking tomatoes out of your garden. Jacob was not... Read it yourself. This guy was not Mr. Nice Guy. And you know, it makes me wonder if God is willing to be known as the God of that dirty, rotten scoundrel maybe he'll be willing to be known as my God. Maybe he would be willing even to wrestle with me by the side of a river and maybe break some bones and some joints and put hips out of place so that he shows that his mercy is dominant. It's able to defeat all of my stubbornness, all of my wickedness, all of my cheating and lying and stealing. His mercy is powerful to overcome me. I need an amen for that. Amen. He, your God is willing to be known as your God. Your God is willing to be able is is willing to be known by someone who stumbles over gossip, who stumbles over coveting, who stumbles over lying, who stumbles over bitterness, who stumbles over worry. Know anybody like that? I do. You must get this point or you will miss the point of the entire psalm. I named this sermon on purpose, Dominant Mercy, to emphasize it. God is merciful and He is willing to be called, call Himself by the name of a guy whose otherwise dominant trait is that of liar and cheater. And yet, the rest of the psalm is all about how dominant God is. He rules the waves in the mountains. He rules over nature. He rules over men. He rules even over war. Something we think that we cannot defend ourselves against. He is dominant. And He is merciful. And as we'll see in a moment, His mercy is dominating And that is why you and I don't need to be afraid. God will relieve our distresses, often by sending consuming fire. Fear not and rejoice in the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Then accept that bitter tasting cure so that you can be well. We learn in this section that judgment precedes peace. Look at the invitation in verse 8. Come. Behold, look, see, pay attention. Don't miss this. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease. He brings desolation so you don't have anything to fight with. He takes away your ability to fight in the first place. That's why the wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Hear the invitation, the gracious invitation. Listen, my friends. Do not close your ear lids. 
to the great grace and mercy of our God who longs to bring you close to His heart. He calls us to behold. Whenever you see the word behold, I want you to automatically translate it in your head. Say, look, see, behold, pay attention. Look at what's going on. And note what is being said. Don't merely let your eyes drift over the words of the page, but allow them to sink into your heart. Now, in this particular instant, what it is that we are to let sink into our hearts is this phrase, how God has brought desolations on the earth. Oh my goodness, how is that encouraging? What kind of encouragement are we supposed to take out of that? Number one, not everything in the Bible is to be encouraging in the same way. It's not all nice little, you know, peaches and cream. Some things are encouraging only in the sense that you should avoid whatever attitude or action it was that brought such horrific consequences. And number two, some things just aren't encouraging at all. And we shouldn't try to pretend that they are. War, by definition, is always evil. I don't care how you look at it. War is wrong. God save us. In the world that we live in, it is often a necessary evil But we must not ever lose sight of the fact that it is always evil. And number three, the destruction that God brings in these verses are exactly what I'm referring to when I say God will relieve our distress, often by by sending consuming fire, often by burning away everything that we've trusted in to put up our dukes against God. Man, is that stupid or what? Right? God's enemies will be forcibly disarmed. And those who continue in rebellion against God will be stripped of all their defenses and ultimately be cast into the trash heap of history. But the question for you and me is, which defenses, which defenses are you still raising up against God? Because listen, our defenses are going to be forcibly stripped away as well. Judgment must precede peace. There is no peace until evil and sin and rebellion are forever destroyed and burned away from you. And you should be throwing a party for that. That is good news. All your sin is gone. Now, for the world at large, this means destruction of all those institutions that remain opposed to Him who brings healing and peace to us. For the individual, it means either separation from God or it means judgment against that sin on Christ's cross while preserving the man, woman, or child who is putting their faith in Jesus. So why did I interrupt my series on the Beatitudes? This is very important. Because when we get back to Matthew 7, Lord willing, oh, no, not not next week, the 24th. Uh, Pastor James is going to be here next week. I'm sorry. I almost said, well, anyways, the next time I preach, we'll be back on Matthew 7. 
we need to understand what kind of mercy it is that we can expect from God. And that mercy very often comes in the form of a hammer. God will relieve our distress, but He often does it by sending consuming fire. Pastor Benji brought up David Brainerd this morning. I don't know if you caught that. David Brainerd is one of my missionary heroes. He died at 29 years old, and he served for approximately four years among a group of Indians known as something with a K. Um, I lost that page. Um, But what's interesting about him, he suffered many things. At nine years old, his father died. At 14, his mother died. He contracted when he was about nine years old, not, excuse me, 19 years old, he contracted the tuberculosis that then took about 10 years to kill him. I want to read a couple of things. Uh, Pastor Benji um, uh, related in his third year at Yale University, he got kicked out by sending what people even then laughed at. That was a dumb thing to kick someone out. Let me come back to that in a minute. But this is what he says on Thursday, April 1st. I seem to be declining in warmth and in divine things. He's admitting that he's struggling. He's having, he's having another one of these depression attacks that plagued him. Had not so free access to God in prayer as usual of late. You ever feel like there's a brick wall above you when you're praying? Oh, that God would humble me deeply in the dust before Him. Oh, if I ever get to heaven. Oh my goodness. You ever feel like that? If I ever get to heaven, it will be because God wills and nothing else. Amen. For I never did anything of myself but to get away from God. He's saying, all that I ever did was try to fight him, but God kept pursuing me like the hound of heaven that he is. Um, This is a couple years later, and he has, um, his health is declining. You got to picture this. From about 19, he keeps having these recurring tuberculosis attacks, and, and it gets better and it gets worse. Set apart this day for fasting and prayer for the bestowment of divine grace, especially that all my spiritual affliction and inward distresses might be sanctifying to my soul. Oh, I love that. God, I wish that I could pray that when I was feeling particularly sinful. Endeavored to remember the goodness of God to me in the year past, this being my birthday, Wednesday, April 20th. I am now arrived at the age of 25 years. My soul was pained to think that I had lived so little to the glory of God. I spent the day in the woods alone and there poured out my complaint to God. Um, You know what? I must have dropped a note because I... um, Konamik Indians. Um, I missed one of my quotes I was going to read to you. He got there and in 12 days... um, he, he got to where he was going to meet these Indians, and in 12 days, his, his uh, diary was, my people. 
And I wanted to, I wanted to emphasize that to you because he understood these pagans, these Indians, backward people that they were. No, no. They're my people. They're, they, they belong to me and I belong to them. I love that. Very near the end of his life. Was very uncomfortable in the evening. My people not coming to me until past 10 at night so that I had no fire to dress my, to cook my food or to keep warm or to keep off wild beasts. Was scarce ever more weak and worn out in all my life. However, I lay down and slept before my people came up, expecting nothing else but to spend the whole night alone and without fire. Very shortly after that, he was forced to leave uh, the woods of upper New York and go back to the city where, long story short, he ends up spending the last several months with some guy in a backwards Northampton town called Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards... Uh, acted as a nurse, I assume, as best he can. Actually, it was probably Sarah Edwards who did it, right? Um, but he ended up pausing in one of his books. And you got to understand, Jonathan Edwards is a geek. I mean, this guy liked nothing better than to sit and write books and preach and talk to people. But he decided that it was far more important to take John, David Brainerd's journals and edit them and turn them into a book. So he took several months out and did that. And here's this 29-year-old backwoods preacher, never had more than a couple of handful of converts to his, his credit because, I mean, let's be honest, back then they just didn't come flocking to Christ and he never had a large congregation. Little-known names like William Carey, Adoniram Judson, Henry Martin, and some strange guy named Jim Elliott all look back and give credit to reading the diary of David Brainerd and God's Word that caused them to go into the mission endeavors that they did. I mean, William Carey, the father of modern missions. Adoniram Judson, one of my absolute favorite guys and the first American to go overseas as a missionary. And you know, uh, what was the guy's name, the rest of the story? Uh, what was it? Paul Harvey, yes. Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. So David Brainerd got kicked out of Yale for saying something like, some, this guy has about as much grace as a table or something. I don't remember the exact quote. Um, but David Brainerd had friends, and David Brainerd's friends went to bat for him. Several of the students, a couple of the professors, but more importantly, people who weren't a part of Yale. And as a result, he never got reinstated to Yale. Yale said, you're out of here. So they started this small school in the house of, a, of the place where David Brainerd was living at the time, which became known as the College of New Jersey. Anybody know the name that we call the College of New Jersey now? Princeton. That is right. Here's the point. You may not know why you're suffering. In fact, I would be willing to bet you you may not know the reason for your suffering this side of eternity. And God will relieve your distress. But sometimes it comes through tuberculosis, terrible depression, 
and finally seemingly meaningless death because you spent the last eight years of your life in the New York woods. But God can redeem anything. And very often, His relief of your distress comes through consuming fire. God, give us the grace to live with the hope that David Brainerd had. Even when he was in his Great Depression, he turned to you and he called out on your name and he was steady in saying, the Lord is the one who is sovereign over this suffering. Lord, let us learn that your mercy is dominant over everything that would turn us away from you. And God, I pray that you would enable us to live lives in light of your dominant mercy, giving glory and honor and praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.